The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Clean Energy Advisors. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the UR Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and I'm a Forbes contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And today's guest is Katie Myler. She's the CEO and founder of More Than Me. She has been recognized around the world for her incredible work, especially during the Ebola crisis in Liberia. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Devin. We're thrilled to have you. We're thrilled to have you. Now, I want to go back to the very beginning. Tell us what you were doing, why you started doing what you were doing back before Ebola in Liberia. Yes. I, uh, so I, had, I moved to Liberia about 11 years ago, almost 12 years ago, and almost been, similar to a Peace Corps situation, living in a remote village, and, uh, and I'd come to the city every so often to get supplies for, for our program. It was a, an adult literacy program I was running. And I met kids on the street who were selling, um, to, you know, selling whatever they could to survive. There was no free school at the time, and, uh, and kids asked me to help them go to school. Um, so I did. So, like, a couple of kids, like, uh, there was a little girl named Abigail who, at 11 years old, was literally, you know, t- told me her story about how she was giving oral sex for clean drinking water, and she wanted help to go to school. Um, and I couldn't walk away from her and her friends. Um, so at first, um, I had some money, so I, I would pay, you know, pay their way, but they kept bringing more and more children. And I used social media as it actually was MySpace back in the day, and then became Facebook, and now it's Instagram as well, um, as a tool to, you know, help share their stories in a, dig, you know, digni- dignified way and, and raise money just through, like, friends and family sending me money, and I was paying their school fees. Um, this ended up turning into the organization more than me. Um, this New York City tax attorney said she would help me set it up for free, and she's like, you have all these kids. It's amazing what you're doing. Um, I'll help you do it for free. And I remember thinking that I am not this enough or that enough. Ivy League enough. I don't have enough money. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a supermodel. I can't do it. And I got really great advice at the time from one of my best friends who said, Katie, get the F over yourself. Um, it's not about you. And I played that in my head over and over again, which I still to this day do. It's not about you. It's not about you. Um, and that's where the name More Than Me was born um, and came from. And so that was the name of the organization. And we started off providing uh, scholarships to vulnerable children and uh, vulnerable girls uh, specifically, targeting young women who had, you know, were most vulnerable to being sexually exploited. Um, that ended up turning into realizing the schools that they were going to weren't good enough. And the community said, this is just the way that it is. Schools aren't good here. Teachers don't show up. Um, there's no lesson plans. Many, many teachers are illiterate. And so I asked the community, how are we going to solve this problem? And they said, we need to start our own school. Um, so we ended up starting the More Than Me Academy, which is the first ever uh, free all-girls school in Liberia. And it was exciting. It was the best day of my life. It was like my birthday. And my mom flew in from New Jersey, and we opened up the academy. The president was there, and my girls were performing and singing and doing, you know, African dance. And it was such a beautiful, uh, beautiful day. And then um, 
that year we it wasn't it wasn't just about the school it was every single barrier that a young woman faces to getting quality education is was addressed at the school we had social workers and healthcare center and um, you know we have after school programs and everything that you can imagine and then obviously quality education as well and we call our model she matters safety health quality education and we monitor our students to make sure not only that their academic performance is there um, which is essential, obviously, um, but that they have happiness and hope for the future. Um, and, and we have some confident young ladies at our academy, so super exciting. Um, I feel like I was born for those girls. I live and breathe for, for, those, for those young women. That's wonderful. Well, so there you are running your school and the Ebola crisis hits. How did that change what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, what, what we realized at that point was that we were more than just a school. We were a part of the community and that we existed to, to fight on the behalf of these, the, these young girls that they would have a future. And if they didn't exist and they were dead because of Ebola, you know, that, that obviously meant that we should try to do something. Um, so originally our plan was to find, you know, to identify organizations that were, you know, the strongest in, in the fight on the front lines. Um, and what we ended up, you know, discovering is that, it was the community members, all these like international organizations who I'm sure many did great work and, you know, lots, you know, there were obviously good organizations as well, but like the main thing was that the community members were fighting for themselves and they didn't have the resources that they needed. Um, and that, you know, they'd call for an ambulance, but the ambulance wouldn't come for four to five days. Um, there was, you know, there's just, so by that time their whole family was sick. Um, of course, there was like one, there was a guy named Saad Joseph. There were a couple people trying to do their best, but it was like he had three ambulances for the entire country, you know, and the rest were broken down. And then kids were abandoned and there was at the time nowhere to bring them. And um, their, their family members were sick. And so we had to take in children. And, um, and then we realized families were being quarantined because their families were, their family members died of Ebola, but they didn't, they were quarantined in their homes with no food and supplies. So we were able to help provide supplies. So we were basically working with the community to create A to Z, what people needed uh, during that time. And the last, the, like the last thing on our list was like, when you can do nothing else, sing and bring dignity and death. Um, so we were doing a lot of like singing and praying people with people while they, while they passed on as well. This must have been an extraordinarily difficult and scary thing. How did you feel through all of that? Yeah, I think it was probably, I also knew it was very, it was like really important. And it felt like it was like the most important thing that I could have been a part of. And um, I, I also don't know that, I think it was like the reaction was to just, to, I don't, they, there's a quote I always say, but if they say like courage is not the absence of fear, it's the ability to act in spite of it. And I think you do have in those moments of crisis, of course you're afraid, but I, you're not led by your fear. Your courage is what, you know, like somehow, some way, and I don't think you always think about it. It just happens. Um, and you are what you thought you were made of. Like you think you're made of something and you, you can make all these claims about who you are, but you, sometimes you don't really know who you are until you're in a situation like that. Um, so, so how did you, uh, avoid getting Ebola in, if you're in the community where people are sick and dying and you're helping the people who are sick and dying, how do you avoid getting Ebola? I mean, the number one, I mean, as the first and foremost thing for our team, it wasn't just me. I mean, we have, we had a team at one point of over 500 staff members we were paying and, um, oh, wow. you know, 
I mean, it was, it was that some people's staff was just not getting paid. So we were able to fill in, but some of them were like, we ended up hiring a lot of extra people too. And, um, and number one was that no one could get sick. Like we were like, absolutely not. We're already, you know, some people thought we were crazy for being a part of this, that we were putting our team members in danger and that we, you know, I was putting myself in danger. I thought we were crazy not to respond. You know, how can we not do something? Um, so we got training from both, um, you know, the World Health Organization, as well as Doctors Without Borders were really kind in, in training our team over and over and over again, uh, making sure, like, this is how you put on and take off your protective gear. I want you to be able to do it with your eyes closed and in your sleep know how to do this. Um, so we did tons of that. And, but the main thing was do not touch anybody or anything, like, at all. Like, just don't touch anything. Um, touching people was the, the main way of making sure that you – um, there was a, you know, you don't touch anyone, which it sounds maybe easier than it really was. I mean, people in that time wanted to hug while they were dying. There was a child, a little boy named Charlie, who was eight, who was in his pool of his own blood dying. And he, all he wanted was somebody to hold him and hold his hand. Um, so to say no to something like that wasn't an easy thing to do. What did you do with, with him as he lay dying? Um, I talked to him and I told him that his mom loved him very much and that I lied to him. And I said, uh, she sent me here to tell you that, you know, she cares so much about you. And I tried to say anything I possibly could to make him feel comfort. And, uh, and I started crying. I tried so hard not to, but I'm like bawling. And I had these like glasses on, so you had your goggles and I'm like bawling. <laughs> and his like last words he like whispered to me were, God will bless you. He's telling me that as an eight-year-old child. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So... You received a fair bit of notoriety as a result of your tremendous work during the Ebola crisis. What has come from that? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think I realized at the moment, like we had seen a lot of people die. It was like Charlie, it was this girl, Sarah. Um, I am never going to be the same person again. So I think like some of the things that like just Ebola did for our team and to us, it bonded us closer. Um, I mean, my relationship with the community and in Liberia tighter than ever before. Um, it's like an Im unimaginable, unexplainable bond, right? That you go through something like this together. We also realized we were more powerful than we realized. Like we were waiting for the experts in the beginning until we realized, oh, we are the experts. Like, you know, you're like waiting for the heroes and you're like, wait, we are the heroes. <laughs> There's like that aspect of like, wow, like all these, you always think that somebody else is coming and that, and in the end, you're like, so there was that realization of how that we were a powerful team. Um, and then there was the realization also that the girls at our academy would never fully be safe or be able to thrive if Liberia was this vulnerable, um, regardless of how great the school was. It could be the number one school in, in uh, it could be better than any school in America or the UK or anywhere in the world. But if they lived in a society that was dangerous, they were in danger. Um, 
And so we had to address that from, you know, in a systematic way. Um, so that, those were some of the realizations. And then at the same time of having those realizations, knowing we weren't going to be the same again, caring less about what people think about you, about the backlash and the politics that are involved in trying to make a difference in the world, which are, are so there. I mean, in fundraising and in international aid and with like being white in Africa and like a zillion things that like are hit at you. You just don't care about any of them. And the thing that you care the most about is, is the kids and like, it actually making sure this never happens again. What happened here was so unjust and so unfair that it cannot happen again. Um, and so th- you get really clear. I think that's what I think death does more than anything is it in myself also thinking I had Ebola at one point, having all the symptoms. I spent two days in the, um, you know, in, in the treatment unit with, you know, next to people who were dying around me. So like thinking 50%, maybe more, like most likely I have Ebola and I could die. Um, you know, you just get clear. And so where, where we, we, we were at afterwards, we wanted to use that platform and, and at, not in the middle of it. I think like people were call, every single news that you can imagine was calling us. And we we're like, we're, like, sometimes we'd just be like, sorry, CNN, we're busy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I didn't even respond. Cause you're just like, we have to run, we have to keep people alive. Um, then when I was named time person of the year, I didn't even know what that was. Like someone had to explain to me that like what this means, it's such a big thing. Like, I think I've just lived in Africa for a while. I don't know why I didn't know. Like, but I knew that I wanted to use the platform to honor the people who had died. Like let's use, and I knew it was like also going to end, like if you don't have it forever, what you did, what we did gain forever was trust and like trust from the community, trust from the government, trust from our donors who believed in us, trust from the viewers who were watching our work and like following us on Instagram that we, you know, it was obvious that we cared. Like, if we didn't care, we wouldn't be, like, there next to the people dying of Ebola. Like, so, um, and that we showed that, like, we get work done. Like, we get the job done. And, um, and like, you know, there's a lot of you know, trust that was built through that time period. So we wanted to use all of that to make sure that we honored these people who passed. And there's no better way to honor them to make sure that what happened to them would never happen again to, to you know, to anybody else. Um, in combination with understanding our girls would never really thrive unless Liberia itself thrived. So we went to the Ministry of Education and we asked the minister, how can we help you rebuild the education system? Um, He said, can you take what you've done at More Than Me and put it into public schools? Um, He wanted originally 30 public schools, two in every county, there's 15 counties. And, uh, and that turned into one of the largest education reforms that's ever taken place, you know, in our generation. Um, it's called Partnership Schools for Liberia, and it's where private partners run public schools. Um, there's definitely lots of people who have different opinions on, on, on that, but I don't care. Like, kids are learning, and uh, it's amazing. Um, before, before this was going on, I mean, literally 100% of the root cause of Ebola comes back to the fact that there are no systems. And you cannot build systems if you don't have an educated population. 100% of people fail, fail the entrance exam to go to Liberia's university uh, because the man who administered the test refused to take bribe money. Um, so it just shows, like, there's another saying in Liberia, if you want to hide something from a Liberian, you put it in writing. Um, so there's just, like, people, like, don't have the tools they need to stand up for themselves or to run systems in the country. So everything is run by very, like, by foreigners that leave when emergencies happen, um, by people brought in from the Philippines or Lebanon or um, even brought from America, both international aid and Liberians that come back. 
um, that have the opportunity to leave when an emergency strikes like war, which Liberia has a history of, as well as um, an Ebola crisis. And so everything falls apart and the people who are most vulnerable are left to fight for themselves with little to no resources. Um, so we wanted to use all that attention, even though the stories of Charlie and Sarah are what motivate the world and what motivate me every day. Um, and the story of Abigail, you know, being involved in sex work, like these children and these people, um, human beings are, are really what, what motivate me. But like the, I think like the work that we're doing is a lot more co like complicated and harder to, harder to talk about. But your work is now, uh, scaling even beyond the 30 schools, right? Uh, the, the plan is for you to be in, uh, 500 schools before long, right? Yeah, Norman, actually, the plan would be, like, what I, I mean, this ultimately has to come from Liberia because it's their public school system. And, um, I, you know, I've heard from the minister's mouth himself, you know, through, he's become a friend through all this, is, you know, a, a partner, is that he, you know, would like to see, and I, I agree with him, I have this vision with him, is that every single public school, which is 2,750 primary schools, primary public schools in the country, would have a partner that helps that school and manages that school to become a school where kids are safe, healthy, and have quality learning. Um, so there are, I am one of eight, more than me is one of eight partners. Um, some of them are for-profit, some are non-profit. We're a non-profit right yeah, at the moment. And um, and we are running, we have seven schools this year, including our private school. And our goal is to be reaching uh, 500 schools in the next five years, which is extremely aggressive. Um, but I, I, I would argue that we have to be aggressive because you know, kids are not learning otherwise. Um, it's 125,000 children we would reach in the next five years. Uh, the potential impact here is huge, isn't it? There's a lot at stake. There's a, there's a lot of things. It's not just, like I say, 125,000 kids, and I think people have a hard time wrapping their minds around that. But um, if I can, can I give you an image around it it's like so we show up at one of these schools we were assigned by the government a few days before the school starts and the building is falling down on the kids and it's the second wettest country in the world so it's like raining on like in the school there's um green like moss growing everywhere so it's super slippery and the school is concrete so if you fall you'll crack your head open um there's no chalkboards there's no books um there's two teachers for nine classes some one is illiterate and blind um, and so this is the condition that the school is in and like when classes, you know, if you go to a school that isn't assigned to a partner and classes are supposed to be going, rarely do you even see students and teachers showing up. It's just like a playground, like maybe some, it's at most, it can be very dangerous actually. There's a huge problem with sex for grades and um, there's no accountability. So it's just really, it's almost like schools can become a very dangerous place. Of course, you find communities that are trying really hard and they are volunteering. There's a woman named Martha who's been a volunteer teacher for five years with no pay, showing up every day, teaching. She knows how to read and write. And I say, Martha, why are you coming here every day to do this? And she said, someone did it for me and I have to do it back. This woman, I'm like, but she goes home and cries every day because she doesn't have any money to feed her kids. So her kid is living with some other relative while she's volunteering. Or Like, it's so, people would never understand how broken broken is you know like it's just beyond what you would ever even imagine kids are are coming through swamps like not even joking like walking over these these bridges that are I can't I won't even walk over them they're so scary and if you fall in there's alligators like I'm not exaggerating alligators in the water underneath and 
uh, they can't swim and they're canoeing over the river and you're like oh my gosh and they get there and there's two teachers and one is illiterate and like there's nine classes it's unbelievable um so i mean that's what we get we're handed and then we're able to like vet the teachers if they don't if they're not qualified they are no longer at the school we were able to you know get nine qualified teachers and fix the community the community works together to fix the school building we bring materials and like in so we've seen since September to today, kids are reading three to four times faster than when we first started. And like attendance rates for teachers are 98%. For students, it's 94%. It's unbelievable what's going on. Um, and what this really means is that Abigail, um, you know, who is involved in sex work, uh, you know, eventually these kids grow up and they run the justice system and then they become police officers and then there's laws. Um, so it's a long-term change. But it also means that these people, you know, these children are growing up running the healthcare systems and hospitals and are able to, to become the people that diagnose Ebola or create the systems that are able to keep it under control when it, when it breaks out. So when there is an Ebola, it, it will only get to a couple people, but not more than 10, 12,000 people will die needlessly. Um, and also, it's also safer for the rest of the world. In America, people don't realize this. It's safer for the United States. It means less war, more stability, more economic growth. Um, which means less threat to, to the United States, and it's better for our economy, too. Yeah, that's great. Oh, well, what I care about is Abigail. <laughs> <laughs> Abigail is an inspiration for you, isn't she? It's the people. It's, I mean, I keep bringing her example back, but it's Susan, who is lives in a brothel, who's like one of our number one students. It's, um, you know, it's Fatu, who lives in one of these communities, who is a genius, naturally. You just see the genius in her. And, but she just didn't have any kind of, you know, there was no outlet for her. And, you know, it's exciting. Those are the stories that really motivate me. But I know that for someone sitting so far away, they don't, you know, they, a lot of times they're like, how does this impact my life? And it does actually impact your life. One is our humanity is all wrapped up in one another. That's what I think ultimately matters. Um, but two, it does actually affect the, you know, economies. Yeah. Well, you are one of the most admired people uh, I've ever met. Who do you look up to? Who inspires you? I mean, I'm inspired by people that no one's ever, you know, have ever heard of. I'm also inspired by many people that, you know, one person, um, I definitely, I, I, not to get political, but like, Mich I mean, Michelle Obama has definitely been an inspiration and in watching her, um, you know, like get, you know, someone else recently was, you know, there's a woman, um, I'm, I'm like, I'm reading her book, um, Chimanda. She's a, an author from Nigeria. Um, and she writes a lot about feminism, but I watched her get attacked for something she said and how she responded to it um, and just stood her ground. I mean, it's, it's people throughout, all, you know, and I think you can learn and find a, a hero in, in everyone. Um, I think, you know, my friend Josh, who started a food company, um, is, I think, so big about change, you know, and, and addressing major change and, um, and goes after it with everything that he has. Um, so I have, I have these inspiration. I'm like, I look up to one of my best friends named Katie, another Katie who, um, you know, teaches me about love and, um, and unconditional love through, through everything. And, um, so I learned different things from different, different people for sure. There are a lot of people who visit Africa, visit Liberia, who experience and see the, the challenges that people face, that, uh, certainly there are a lot of people who met Abigail uh, who were in a position to help her. Um, 
You did. Why? I think because I could at the moment, and I, I honestly don't, I don't believe that anybody could meet a little girl who asked them for money to go to school who's involved in sex work. I can't imagine any human being turning their back on, on that child. I think the difference is uh, many people will help Abigail, but they won't stay long enough to understand that the issue is actually bigger than, than the school, you know, or they know, but they feel, I think you get, you feel over, Overwhelmed with the problem and you don't stay to address the larger issue. Um, I feel lucky enough that, you know, I don't know, it's a, definitely working hard and being committed and, and by choice too, but I also think I was young and I was curious and I, you know, I could stay and I, I did. And I'm really grateful that, I mean, it's been hard and obviously, you know, there's no, nothing easy about, you know, the journey of making change in the world. Um, and I think that the people who, who really do make those changes are the ones that stick with it and don't, you know, refuse to take no for an answer that will get hit and knocked down, but stand back up and keep going. Um, and I do see a lot of people like that throughout, you know, throughout the world. And, uh, you know, there, there are, there are several, I mean, I, I also th understand where people meet Abigail and pay her school fees and go back to, you know, their comfortable lives. Um, and there's no, I don't judge that either. I think we need those people to donate to more than me. Like, you know, go have your comfortable life. I don't know. I kind of do believe like each of us is born for our reason. And maybe some people's reason is to like, is to be working in partnership with Liberia and creating these changes. And maybe it's for some people to be donating to those causes and raising, raising children and that are, you know, globally minded that care about others. Um, I just try really not hard not to judge others and realize that each of us do, uh, you know, contribute to the world and, in the way that we can. What is your superpower, Katie? Um, I think empathy. I think empathy is a superpower. I think it is a superpower. I think it's a great superpower. <laughs> yeah. I could use a little more of that. That's a great one. Well, Katie, we can't thank you enough for being with us today, uh, for the time you spent, and of course, we're excited about the work you're doing. But before you go, will you tell people how they can learn more about more than me and connect with you? Yeah, we definitely, obviously, it, the most helpful way um, that anyone could participate if they're interested is by becoming a reoccurring donor. We have a program called um, the 2021 Collective. And what that's all about is that if we all come together by the year 2020, 20, 2021, we can reach and, you know, the one, you know, 125,000 children that we're, that our goal is to reach. Um, and so that's a program that's on our website, more than me, donate, and then you become a reoccurring donor. Um, and we ask people to sign up at $40 a month if they can, but do whatever, whatever, you, if you can do more, great. If you can do less, that's okay too. Um, obviously social media has been a huge way that we share. I think it's a way also to, to share our story and like what's going on every day um, through Instagram at more than me, uh, more than me org org and then Katie Myler I share my personal journey of like what my life looks like on both sides my personal life and it's very much merged um, because I want to show people the reality of what it makes to you know what change looks like it's not it, it's not all me in Liberia with the children you know what I mean like that's a piece of it but it's also me yesterday with the World Bank and it's um, you know talking having an interview and um, being in DC and being at an event at a, you know you've, it's a lot of things coming together it's working with with politicians and public private sector um, 
to really make it happen. Um, so those are through our social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook are our main ones. But Twitter, What's your Instagram handle? Um, mine is at Katie Myler, M-E-Y-L-E-R, and then More Than Me's is More Than Me, O-R-G. Fantastic. Well, Katie, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. We wish you every success in continuing the great work you're doing. Thank you very much, Devin. All right. Let's do some good. Clean Energy Advisors creates investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector that provide clients with a predictable income, preservation of capital, and positive impact. Clean Energy Advisors is committed to providing clients with investment opportunities with both market rates of return and measurable impact. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devonthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.